Welcome to The Beat, a podcast series from the COPS office at the Department of Justice, featuring interviews with experts from a varied field of disciplines. The Beat provides law enforcement with the latest developments and trending topics in community policing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Beat. I'm your host, Jennifer Donilon. Today, we are speaking with a unique figure in American policing, a man who's had a storied career. In law enforcement circles, he could be considered both an everyman figure as well as a profile in courage. In either case, throughout his career, he proved to be willing to do what it takes to get the job done, to go against the grain when needed, and to call it like he sees it, all while being empathetic, humble, soft-spoken, but strident when called for. We're speaking with Chuck Jordan, who spent 50 years in law enforcement, primarily with the Tulsa Police Department in Oklahoma, when he retired as the chief of police in December of 2019. Chief, how are you? I'm good, Jennifer. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. I have to let you know that when you agreed to speak with us, our producer was, and I kid you not, over the moon. He's been a fan of yours from a distance for quite some time, and the cop's office is just utterly honored to have you join us. Welcome to The Beat. Well, thank you, and I'm honored to be asked. Chief, let me begin with 50 years in law enforcement is a long time, and you have seen a lot during that span. Can we start by having you share how you got into policing, why you got into policing? Why did you decide to make this a career? Well, it's kind of a a dual motivation. My dad was an Indiana State Trooper and ultimately went to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was the DEA back in in the 50s. And that always made me think about maybe wanting to be a police officer. And then I went to Vietnam, came back, and I saw all the discord in this country and all the distrust of government. And I really kind of thought it out a little bit and thought, you know, the average citizen, the only representative government they're going to get to see is a police officer. So probably if I want to make a difference, it's probably as good a place to start as any. And that was part of my motivation. And I loved the job from the day I started till the day I quit. I was always, I'd sit and many times and go, I can't believe they're paying me to do this. That's the best kind of job, right? You figure out something you love to do and somebody pays you to do it. I mean, it's just icing on the cake. That's it. So you joined in 1969, obviously a point in American history where there was a lot going on. I'm wondering if during that time you learned lessons then that you carried throughout your career. I'm especially interested in how they may have impacted towards the end of your career. Well, 1969, if you remember, that was the years of protest. You know, I grew up very much with dealing with protest and understanding the necessity of the right to free speech and protest. And we went for a long time without any public protest. So there's a lot of younger officers that were very threatened and they didn't understand it. You know, they'd never experienced it. And I kind of had an advantage by going through it. And I knew most times how it was going to end. I knew how to look for the legitimate protesters and the folks who were trying to cause trouble. I knew that those people had to be kind of weeded out and these major events. And I think that gave me a little bit of a benefit having gone through that in the 60s. You know, there are often times when people say, you know, I've never seen it this bad in the United States. Say, well, look at history. You know, there have been moments in this country's history that I'm sure those living at the time wondered whether it would ever get any better. When you joined law enforcement, How did you sort of overcome perhaps the feelings towards law enforcement at that time? Well, I think you have to come from a perspective of, you know, you're going to do the job to protect your citizenry and to serve your citizenry, whether they like you or not. And it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And, you know, if they're wrong about you, then it's up to you to do things to prove that they are wrong and that you're not the things that they think you are. 
right now in America to put on that uniform and put on that badge, it's very difficult for those who are, are out there right now. You know, they're not being met with open harms by many. What advice do you give them? Well, things do tend to be cyclical. You know, in the late 60s, early 70s, law enforcement made some changes that kind of helped our standing with our communities. There were socioeconomic changes that went on that helped our communities of color and our communities that didn't have the same economic advantages as others. Things just tend to cycle. I think the social justice issues, some are valid. There's a lot of false narrative out there right now. I attribute a lot of that to social media. People can say what they want without being confronted and pretend it's the truth. There you know, there are entire websites that are dedicated to lies from both sides of the coin. They can post without being factual. They're not held to the same standards, certainly no. online. Sure. And you're, you're talking about, like I say, the false narrative. You know, it started with Ferguson. Well, you know, we've got African-American witnesses in the grand jury in Ferguson that said Michael Brown never had his hands up and he was attacking Darren Wilson. And we have his DNA on Darren Wilson's gun. But no one will come up out front with the government and say that because uh, it's not, you know, it's just not the cool thing to do. And, you know, we're, we're getting blamed for Trayvon Martin. And that wasn't a police officer. They went for weeks talking about the police are going after everybody in a hoodie. Well, you know, we wear hoodies. <laughs> we don't go after people in hoodies. So I like to say that some of these false narratives are, are just, you know, they're not good. And, and you look at the percentage. Some of these things are atrocious that happen. Some of these police killings, without, without a doubt. But you look at, at how many have actually happened at the hands of police officers, and they're very minimal. I understand the frustration of our minority communities, but by the same token, I think there's, there's a lot of false narrative where people are telling their, their children, don't go out. If you see a police officer, don't roll down the window because he's going to kill you. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff. And again, this is our job to change that. It's our job to better engage our communities and to regain the trust. Whether the reason it's not there is right or not, we're the only ones that can fix it. That's true. That's true. Let's go back. After a number of officers were retiring, you'd been on the job for 22 years. You created Tulsa's Tactical Response Squad. Now, that was to address armed robberies. Yes, it was. And the unit arrested 183 suspects in two years. Is that right? You've done some real research on this, haven't you? I told you our producer was over the moon. <laughs> so, yeah. yes, a lot of research was done. Okay, so... The unit arrested 183 suspects in two years in a city like Tulsa with a population of 400,000 residents. That seems like a large number. Can you tell us what initially made that unit so effective and what it took to stand it up? Well, there's different ways to attack different crime problems. Sure. And armed robbery has always been a crime where everybody rushes to the scene. And I immediately took the attack. First of all, I used younger officers. We're not going to get bored very easily. They would stay out here and, and really you know, dig their heels in and stay busy. And we just had a standing rule. If you're a mile away from the armed robbery, when it gets on the radio, you're too close. They're past you. So we looked a lot at major arteries. We looked at setting up on different points in town. And that's basically how we started catching these people. Had a lot of help from an FBI agent that was a local FBI agent that was a part of my task force. We did some of the first prosecutions on the Hobbs Act, which is the interruption of interstate commerce. Right. Which is interesting because we had a guy that was hitting restaurants. He hit a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, we'd have somebody come over from Arkansas where the chicken plant was and testify that they brought those chickens to the Kentucky Fried Chicken in Oklahoma. So, you know, we got a lot of good federal time off of that during that time, but it was out of control for a while. And we, that's why I initiated the request for the task force. The average evening shift, you'd hear the armed robbery alert go out 15, 20 times. And for a city the size of Tulsa, that's ridiculous. Wow. Yeah. And we had a couple killings. What really tore it for me, we had a, a Marine on leave killed in front of a bar. 
South Tulsa. And I said, okay, enough's enough. We've got to start going after these folks. Your crime stats must have been tremendous. They were. Because a lot of them, I'm sure, were repeat offenders. Oh, they were, yes. And we went from having about 155 armed robberies a month down to 27 to 28 robberies a month. That's an impact. Yeah, it was. It was two years worth. You know, I say it was a great experience for a lot of young officers. Biggest trick in armed robbery. I got caught in armed robbery my first day on the job. Really? And, yeah, got incredibly lucky. I mean, I'm working a, a traffic officer, and they put out an armed robbery alarm at a convenience store, and I spot the truck. The significance of that is, you know you can do it. Some guys, they think, oh, man, he, he's gone by now. There's no way I can get him. And they kind of give up on it. You can't do that. These guys are very catchable. Sure. And if we're to give into that belief, then the criminals have won. That's exactly right. Well, and you know, there's a, the whole thing with patrol has a tendency, some patrol officers, that once it happens and they take the original report, it's the detective's responsibility. This is not mine anymore. And that's why I love patrol officers that follow up as far as they can. I encourage, when I was sergeant, I encourage my officers, if you guys spend two more hours on that burger report to follow leads and start now, whether just turn it over to a detective in three days or whatever it takes, do it. And same way with armed robbery. If my officers would go to the scene, and I'd always have the task force officers go to the scene, we would take all the reports. So the patrol officers loved us. <laughs> they could stay out in the field and look for armed robbers while our guys were taking reports. We had some that were also looking for robbers, but we took all the reports. But we also got all the intelligence and got all the information that we needed to go through, too, by doing that. You have automatic buy-in. Everybody has invested. You know, I put out a newsletter every week honoring some patrol officer that gets an armed robber go with cops and robbers, go over our major robberies for the week and who did good. It went over well with the troops. They loved it. Never underestimate the impact of literally telling someone good job. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It means a lot. So you have the distinction of retiring from the Tulsa Police Department twice, right? Yes. The first time was after 32 years when you left to become the regional commander of a United Nations civilian police mission in war-torn Kosovo and led an international force of more than 1,200 officers. Yeah, storied career is is an understatement. You've credited your experience with developing an interest in police administration to this experience. So what did it teach you both about leadership in American policing compared to law enforcement in other countries? Well, the biggest thing it taught me is negotiating with other entities. You know, I'll put it this way. My worst day in Tulsa Police Department is better than my best day in Kosovo. <laughs> you know, we were constantly dealing with their Serbian enclaves were still there. They were constantly under attack by Albanian populations. We had to protect them. So I would be getting calls from everything from the prime minister of Serbia to Kofi Annan from the UN. Just a constant battle. And we were in the middle of making everything civilian. It had been military. And military was trying to, what they call unfixing, like take away checkpoints and stuff like that. And, you know, my officers are armed nine millimeter pistols, period. And, you know, we got some of the terrorists over there with AK-47s and more. So I was constantly fighting that battle. It's not time to take down our checkpoints yet. It's like we'll get a little further along in this process. And NATO was pretty understanding. I was in a German sector and you could talk to them. It was pretty good. But I had to learn how to do that. You know, that was something I'd never had to do was have a corresponding general on the other side of the table and constantly having conversations and give and take and, and things like that. So it was it was a good experience for me. Yes, I would say a good experience. <laughs> it sounds amazing. I'm like, oh my gosh, who am I talking to? <laughs> Just a reminder to our listeners, we are speaking with Chuck Gordon, retired chief of the Tulsa Police Department, and he has had an amazing, amazing career. So when you returned from Kosovo, you joined the Tulsa County Sheriff's Office and earned the rank of captain. Later, you were appointed interim chief back at the Tulsa Police Department. 
And several months after that, the interim designation went away and you took full charge of the department. After returning to where you got started, this time as the head of an organization, having experienced all of that in Kosovo and in a sheriff's office, what was different? Had your perspective changed or expanded? You know, it had a lot, but there's one thing I'll always say this. I never made any decisions as a chief any differently than I did as a sergeant. And I think keeping that sergeant's perspective served me very, very well. Sergeant's the most important position on any police department. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you have the maximum influence on your troops. If you've got your sergeants on your side and they're doing the right thing, you're going to have a great police department. Some people question, can you come back as a sergeant to be chief? And it worked okay for 10 years. (laughs) It sure did. Is it common for many officers to spend their entire career in one agency? Are there benefits or drawbacks to moving in the middle of a career, do you think? You know, a lot of people will leave the agencies because it doesn't look like their career path is going to go to chiefs and somebody else is going to get it or going to be there for a long time. There were people that left when I came because they knew I would be there for several years. One went to be chief in a town in Arizona. Another one went to Alaska to be a parole officer, actually. But Tulsa, most departments, people try to stay in the same department most of their career. You know, I never even took a lieutenant's test. I never had any desire for command. Really? I love the streets. I love the squad level supervision. I like the hands-on, you know, going to catch bad guys with your troops. And Kosovo is what taught me. I went over there and I was just going to be, you know, a basic patrol officer, probably. Because we were teaching the Kosovo Police Service. We had to bring up a 6,000 officer Kosovo Police Service, too. So a lot of it was teaching, but I was there like a month and the commissioner was Danish and called me down there and said, well, I'm going to make you regional commander if that's okay with you. (laughs) No more pay, by the way. You get paid the same, but it was a great experience for me. I found out, first of all, that all the things I was writing about as a sergeant, I could change as a regional commander. There's that benefit. (laughs) But yeah, I got to learn that command is important and that you have a lot of influence, really positive influence, you know, being in command too. I came back, went to work at the county, started as a deputy, made corporal, made sergeant, made captain, and then I was over the reserves and the SWAT team as a captain. So basically, I would shoot submachine guns and drink coffee all day. (laughs) Whatever made me thought I should take this chief job, I don't know, but I did. (laughs) Lost a bet? (laughs) Well, no, this was a funny deal. The guy, he was going to run for mayor, Dewey Bartlett. Great man. And he had been a counselor. He used to ride with me every Saturday night. I was a sergeant. And he called me to eat lunch with him one day. And he says, well, I'm going to run for mayor again. If I make it, I'd really like for you to be part of my administration. I said, well, I said, what what do you got in mind? He said, well, police department. I said, well, you know, I had retired. I can't come back. Only the chief can come back. He said, that's what I'm talking about. Oh. Wow. What went through your heart and mind then? Well, I've been married a lot of years by then. So I did the smart thing. I said, I'm going to talk it over with my wife first. (laughs) <laughs> yes, very smart. And, you know, because it's going to impact her. And I had to talk over with my son because he's on the police department. It's obviously going to impact him. And they were both okay with it. I said, okay. And it was supposed to happen in September of 2010. That then chief was going to retire. Well, he ended up leaving in January. So January of 2010, I was interim chief. And in November, they made me actual chief. Kind of an interesting thing because previous mayor had not made chief job civil service. And Mayor Bartlett said, well, I'd really like to pay you more money. I'm going to try to give you a raise somehow. And I said, you can't give me a raise. We laid off police officers. We laid off other employees. We just got our police officers back. I said, the only way you could give me a raise is to make it civil service again. He said, okay. (laughs) So I was not at will, you know. You literally are taking the words out of my mouth. You were a civil service chief. So do you think that made a difference in how you were able to lead? And what's the difference between appointed chiefs, at will chiefs versus civil service chiefs? And do you think the fact you were a civil service chief impacted the way that you were able to lead? 
Oh, absolutely. And I was lucky. Both the mayors I worked for never asked me to do anything onward or out of line in any way, shape, or form. But I know other chiefs that were at will that have had to kind of succumb to the will if they wanted to stay. So it gives you a lot more independence. I don't think a police chief should ever be at will. It's too much pressure, too much option for corruption and just bad administration. I can see that. Absolutely. I could still be fired for cause, you know, but it's not going to change just because the mayor changes. So we're going to take a little walk back in history. Painful moment in history. For those listeners who may or may not be aware, Tulsa has a well-chronicled history. On May 31st and June 1st, 1921, mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked Black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa. It has been called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. The attack, which was carried out on the ground and from private aircraft, destroyed more than 35 square blocks of Greenwood at a time when it was the wealthiest Black community in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. That incident happened 100 years ago, but it is still in the psyche of many citizens of Tulsa. So on April 6, 2012, Good Friday, when five Black citizens were randomly shot, and three of them died, it sent shockwaves through that community. Chief, can you tell us what happened on that day? Yeah, it happened. first one started about one o'clock in the morning and I got a phone call. And of course, the first one, it was just a shooting. And it was in a relatively high crime area, neighborhood. You know, it could have been a dope deal. It could have been gangs. It could have been anything. The homicide investigators were en route. Then suddenly we had two more victims show up in that same area. And all three were African-American. And then we had a man call in, and he was in that neighborhood, and he was confronted by two white guys in a car, and he got away. He turned and ran, and they cranked off one round, I believe, but he got away. So then we knew we were going to have problems. It was scary. I've never seen the cohesiveness of our department or of our community. Our African-American community was not exhibiting anger. They were exhibiting absolute fear, as they should have been. And our officers came through like champions. They made it very clear that this is not going to be stood for. We're going to get them. And my biggest fear was that it was just somebody coming through town. I-40 on the way to Tucumcari or somewhere. Mm -hmm. But we were prepared in some ways. Every major department needs to have a standing unit to deploy during these kinds of things. I've always had one. I always will. Ours was the Fugitive Warrants Task Force. But that isn't all they did. We had serial rapists. We had serial robbers. We had a series of shootings. They would be directly involved. Very good at surveillance and they're very good at apprehension. So that was our core unit that we deployed and added to it. Put a lot of people on the streets, a lot of people in that unit, and ultimately the public cooperated with us and called in, and we ended up getting the guys Sunday. So this was on a Friday. You got them on Easter Sunday. So a total of five people were shot, three killed. Were the five people all shot on that one day, or did it continue into the weekend? No, it was that one night. Really? Yeah. There's healing that has to happen after something like that. Oh, there is. Well, it's, you know, it actually improved the relationship with the police department. I think everybody in our community, African-American, white, everybody saw what the police department's willing to do when something like that happens and the resources we're going to put forward and we're going to succeed. And it had a very positive impact on our relationship with the community. I'm going to talk about something you did at that time. So that incident obviously opens old wounds. And many people, though, believe that had it not been for your leadership, Members of the community, both black and white, would have drawn parallels to 1921. At the time of the shooting, you held a press conference that was covered live on national television. 
Your words, your unifying approach calmed fears and generated an unprecedented level of cooperation. That's what people are saying between police and the community, the Black community in particular. And I I know you just mentioned that. During that press conference, in an indirect and confident, inspiring manner, you let the community know that the increased police presence in Black neighborhoods was an indication that the Tulsa PD was there to support and protect the people of the community. You also made somewhat of a commitment, which I know can be a little daunting because, you know, you made a commitment that you were going to apprehend the shooters quickly, which you ended up doing, but you didn't know that at the time. (laughs) But that does show your faith in your people. For you personally and for Tulsa PD, did the situation in 1921, did you feel that as you were addressing that moment in 2012? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had African-American friends in the community that called and expressed, again, not anger. They were just, they were fearful. And they talked about that. They said, you know, my grandparents went through 1921. And I probably did step out on a limb by saying, we're coming for you. <laughs> well, that's true. We're coming for you. <laughs> and we're going to get you. And, you know, I have that much faith in the group of people that were in that fugitive warrants and the officers that were assigned to look. No doubt in my mind that they were going to get him. I didn't know we'd get him by Easter, but I knew we would get him, undoubtedly. Well, and that faith from their leader, I'm sure, was inspiring to your officers. One year after the Good Friday shootings, at a reconciliation ceremony, you apologized for the police department's actions in the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. You said, and I quote, as your chief today, I can apologize for our police department. I am sorry and distressed that the Tulsa Police Department did not protect its citizens during those tragic days in 1921. Fast forward to 2016, you received a standing ovation from a diverse crowd at a gathering where you stated Black Lives Matter. Just two months later, Tulsa became the scene of a high-profile police-involved shooting when a Tulsa PD officer killed an unarmed Black man. And that incident occurred during a span of several high-profile police shootings in Ferguson, Baton Rouge, Charlotte, and other cities. Again, you held a press conference, and it was again covered nationally. And you again eased frustrations by immediately releasing the video after viewing it with the family of the deceased and then with the leaders of Tulsa's Black community. But most important to some, you stated how you felt about what you saw. And that was a personal thing. Unlike the other cities that experienced violence after one of those incidents, there was no violence in Tulsa. Can you take me back to that? Yeah, it was the the camera thing. And I caught a little bit of heat from, from some members of my staff about releasing it. My thoughts are, why do we have the cameras? We're never going to release it. People are just going to trust us less. It's not going to be getting any prettier two months down the line. It's going to be a very ugly video no matter when you show it. And I think it's, it's imperative that we let our citizens know that we understand that we're under scrutiny and we have those cameras for a reason and we'll show what happened on those cameras. I say it was a very disturbing scene. That's not to say anything about what happened or what the officer did or didn't do. Anytime somebody gets shot, it's disturbing. And I say, I thought it was very important. I've been watching cities not show their videos for months. If you remember, at the same time, Kurt Putney in Charlotte was having an officer-involved shooting at the same exact time. Was that at the exact same time? Yep. He wanted to release his video. His mayor would not let him. And, you know, you're talking about... The shooter was an African-American police officer who was a rock star, an athlete, academic rock star in college. The gun is laying there beside the guy that's got an ankle holster with the gun on, but they wouldn't release the video. 
it would have gone so far for people to render their own decisions. But it's a difficult position, I am assuming, to be the one to have to make those decisions. And particularly when you have to make those uncomfortable decisions, right? I mean, you said even your own staff was like, I don't think we should release this. And yet you did. And that takes something special to do because at the end of the day, the transparency in law enforcement is going to be what saves law enforcement. I agree completely. And it wasn't all my staff. There were a few that just questioned whether we should do it now or not. And of course, this was kind of new ground for us. We hadn't had an officer involved shooting with video before. And so we didn't have a set policy at that point. I say it was new ground. And whenever you do something for the first time, there's always going to be naysayers and and people that are for it. But we worked it out. And once we had done it, everybody agreed that that's what we should have done. That's amazing. When you were going through the academy in 1969, did you ever imagine that you would become Tulsa's healer in chief? What is it that led you to handle all of these issues as you did? And what advice would you give to others in law enforcement on policing in the aftermath of issues that are a potential racial powder keg? You know, I'm the worst about being somewhat defensive. I defend my profession. I defend my department. I defend myself, my decisions. But I've learned that doesn't help anything when you do that. You're not listening if you're defending your position. And I think I would tell anybody that's in the chief's position or really any command position, you've got to be prepared to listen to what the other side has to say. You've got to be prepared to be very, very transparent, even when it hurts. Again, as I said earlier in our show, it's going to be up to us to regain trust. The community's not going to do it on their own. And so that means we're going to have to make some changes we can't make, we shouldn't make. You know, there's people who don't want us to arrest anybody. Well, that doesn't work with our human nature, unfortunately. You know, are there things that possibly in sentencing and maybe in the courts that could be changed? Yeah, it probably could. Should we be more involved in community engagement? Yes, absolutely. When you know somebody and you know their friends and you know who their favorite football team is and you know their first name, it's pretty hard to start hating. You know, it just changes the perspective of everything. And I think we've got to get those personal relationships that make a difference. The beat cops make a difference. We had gone to several different patrol styles while I was gone and I put us back under a beat system because I think it's important that people know who the officer he or she is that's in their neighborhood, and they talk to them. You just can't have these faceless people driving around in cars and expect to have any kind of a relationship, which is what you're trying to build with your community. So I say it's a lot of things. I've never been a big believer in having community policing units because I think that that job has got to be for every cop on the street. If you've got a specialty unit that's assigned to do it, guess what the cops on the street think? Oh, they're going to handle it. <laughs> You, know, you can have somebody organizing it. You can have somebody putting it all together, but you've got to include the beat cops and the guys out in the street because that's just too important. Chief Chuck Jordan, it has been a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Thank you for walking us back through those extraordinary moments in your life. And thank you for all that you have done for policing. Chief, on behalf of our listeners, we want to thank you for 50 years of selfless service. I'm going to thank my community for allowing me because it's been the most satisfying job I could ever have. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on The Beat. The Beat is brought to you by the United States Department of Justice's COPS Office. The COPS Office helps to keep our nation's communities safe by giving grants to law enforcement agencies, developing community policing publications, developing partnerships, and solving problems. If you have comments or suggestions, please email our response center at askcopsrc at usdoj.gov or check out our social media on Facebook, www.facebook.com backslash DOJ Cops on YouTube, 
www.youtube.com backslash C backslash DOJ Cops Office or on Twitter at Cops Office. Our website is www.cops.usdoj.gov. The opinions contained herein are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the authors or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.